Welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where a bunch of friends get together and talk everything movies. This theme, we've been uh, talking about our part two of underrated films. One of our very first episodes in, or themes, in fact, our very first theme was underrated movies. And we are returning to that theme. Um, and we've got some great selections that we've been talking about. And to round out our theme, we'll be talking about my pick. But before we talk about the film, I want to just get a sense of how everyone's doing. It's the beginning of fall, you know, how are we feeling? Have we watched anything? Have we been into the fall vibes, you know, going to the pumpkin patch, shit like that? How are you guys doing? I'm okay. I've been working a lot and uh, have found myself just utterly exhausted by breathing. Um so I haven't really watched anything. I was trying to think, like, have I seen a single thing? No, I have not watched any movie. <laughs> I don't even think I've had the TV on that often, except my uh, firefighter procedural drama <laughs> came back uh, last week, 911. So this is my guilty pleasure. I love this show. Um, and it is already serving the drama and the trauma. It's it's great. We love it. Is that their tagline? No. Should be. So, Who are the major stars in 911? Um, Angela Bassett, Peter Krauss, Jennifer Love Hewitt. Was Rob Lowe in that? Oh, wow. He's Rob's in the Ghost Whisperer. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's in the spin-off um 911 Lone Star, but I don't watch okay. that. Nice. Well, these fall vibes have me uh and work have me a little bit exhausted also, which means that I'm watching more stuff when I get home. <laughs> Is usually the mode that I shift into. So I've seen a lot um, in an effort to kind of dip my toes back into horror, as is the season I saw X, which I thought was fine. Perhaps a little underwhelming, if I'm being honest. I think it, uh, it's it got some really good performances, but uh, kind of juggles some overtread themes that I don't think it brings much more nuance to or that fresh a take to. I thought it was fine. But I did also see the two worst movies that I've seen this year. Both of them uh, new. Uh, one of them being Pinocchio, Disney's uh, live-action retelling of the uh, the old uh, that old nineteen forties chestnut. Uh, I gotta say, it's uh, dreadful. It, it's it's so uh, overwhelmingly CG, and the CG is very poorly rendered. Like the most important part of an animated character is their eyes, because that's how you really get expressive characterization when it comes to animation and they're just sort of like these soulless painted on things that don't really even move or look that convincing and the structure of it's a mess it's it's just sort of a wall-to-wall disaster but uh i have to say that uh it was admittedly very funny seeing tom hanks walking through the rain by lantern light shouting pinocchio pinocchio (laughs) uh so that was fun i did also see though the bubble that's uh, Judd Apatow's most recent offering. Uh, it positions itself as a uh, gleeful inside baseball industry satire of making films and uh, content during the pandemic, which I think is something that uh, you know, two years in we're already tired of and is pulling in like kind of industry cliches that were tired like 15 years ago. So I would describe it as a joyless disgrace. Uh, two of the worst movies I've seen this year dave my favorite i'm surprised by either one of those being (laughs) uh my favorite thing about you watching pinocchio was how you were keeping us in the loop of watching pinocchio and the videos that you sent of some like really unbelievable moments (laughs) uh so you you laughing at the pinocchio that's no what was it again there's that and there's the other line of uh they picked pinocchio up 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 off the street with his uh basket on a stick and uh just plop him there in the driver's seat of this carriage on their way to uh what is it pleasure island and the driver just shouts look what we picked up off the bleeding streets a little wooden boy and i fell off my couch <laughs> laughing so uh not worth your time but uh there are some occasional glimmers of it being so off the rails that it's hilarious 
Did you know that uh, Guillermo del Toro is making a Pinocchio too? And it's all stop motion. That's coming out in December, and it looks pretty great. It looks like it has all the, like, vision and heart that this movie sorely lacks. It's just interesting that, like, after all these years, suddenly there are two Pinocchios that are coming out. Then again, that's Hollywood. I feel like, ooh, future butter with that theme. We've talked about it. It might be interesting to resurface. Mm. Doing themes of, like, the same movie coming out in the same year. I haven't been watching anything. I'm looking at new movies lately, uh, mainly just House of the Dragon on Sundays. I'm actually coincidentally wearing my House Targaryen shirt today for recording. Um, it's just so, as I've been saying, it's just so nice to have a good Game of Thrones product out in the world. Um, I think really masterfully handled of like, how do you cover like 20 years in the first season of like history time? And so I think the show's just been really expertly pulled off having a younger cast and then this recent week they jumped ahead 10 years so it's like season one has two pilots in it uh which most most shows struggle to have one good pilot um or a good first season but house of the dragon has really been nailing in my opinion every single episode so that's basically what i've been watching and going down the youtube and podcasting rabbit holes just like in the good old seasons five six and seven and eight days of game of thrones so feeling very nostalgic for a show that and a world that means a lot to me um can i just bring up a little bit of movie news news uh, news connor actually broke this news to me this morning at work and i have been disgusted ever since i've had like this I've kind of been like feeling kind of crappy today, not just because of this, but I swear to God, this was the catalyst and it's not your fault, Connor. But, uh, this morning Connor was like, oh yeah, uh, Hugh Jackman is going to reprise the role of Wolverine in Deadpool three. And honestly, that's my 13th reason. That's it. I, (laughs) I don't, I don't want it. I don't care about it. But did you see the YouTube little, I just literally watched it right before we got on to record this on, have you seen the, um, Ryan Reynolds, Hugh Jackman little bit that they do? It's very cute. I hate Ryan Reynolds like so much. (laughs) As do most people, but, or no, I guess there's a huge Ryan Reynolds fan base. Yeah. I don't feel strongly about him, but it's cute because they're like, I know you guys have a lot of questions because you know, Wolverine died in Logan, and then they do this little bit, and it's really cute. But anyhow, well, I'm sorry, I ruined your day right in the morning, first thing when I came into into the office. It just it it didn't ruin it, but like it started it. I I saw the light leave your eyes. <laughs> it took it's, you like three like a couple seconds to process what I was saying. Uh huh. And then I saw the light fade away. I was like heartbroken. <laughs> Yeah, and that being your 13th reason. It was here that my troubles began. Those sideburns. Those damn sideburns. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. We should have a little butter with that um, news break. You know, like uh, this this just in, in movie news. I mean, we kind of do that, but we could have like a, yeah. Uh, Two weeks after the fact news roundup. (laughs) Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, You know, listeners will, will know that we are not always uh, that um, timely when it comes to news. I call um, it planning ahead with recording. That's what I call it. Anyway, I'll stop derailing. <laughs> no, no. I mean, we're all guys, listeners. We're always coming up with new ideas. Once again, I, you know, we save it for the end of the episode, but we don't know if you always listen through the end of the episode. Send us an email. Tell <laughs> us what are your, on your like, what are what's on your mind. Um, the only new movie I've seen, and besides the one we're talking about today is I saw event horizon for the first time and I was associated that movie with being like a bad or like hokey sci-fi movie. And it's wonderful. Like it's a lot of fun. I mean, it definitely is like, has its dated moments and plot elements, but I was pretty much surprised where it was going at every turn. It's a wonderful, just sci-fi horror. Sam Neill is like has a wonderful character transformation uh, and it subverts like a lot of great trope. Like I, I sort of thought it would show its age, you know, in like 90 nineties 
survival sci-fi tropes, but it subverts some in a really interesting ways. Lawrence Fishburne is awesome as a captain who's just like, this is what we must do. And you're like, yes. yes. And then of course, everything goes to shit or to hell, mm. <laughs> uh, so to speak. But uh, yeah, a lot of fun. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. Do you see? Do you see? <laughs> yeah. I mean, also the design of that ship is just, like, what is going on? Why are there spikes in this ship? I don't get it, <laughs> besides just, like, aesthetic reasons um, and Samuel's m- twisted mind. Uh, but, yeah, so let's roll right. Speaking of sci-fi, let's roll right into uh, today's pick, which um, is the 2018 film called Prospect. Now, this film was directed and written by Zeke Earl and Chris Caldwell. And it was actually based on a short film that both of them had done and posted on Vimeo that suddenly got really popular. And they were able to, over several years, get enough funding and support to be able to do a feature-length film. It stars Sophie Thatcher, Pedro Pascal, and Jay Duplass, and a few other folks uh, that pop in the movie Um, but I had watched this for the first time last year and it had kind of popped on my radar. I don't know if anyone had recommended it to me. I think I was just kind of like looking for like a sci-fi movie to watch and it popped up kind of like in internet searches. And after watching it, I was like, wow, I'm surprised I haven't heard about this. And uh, especially since, you know, a lot of the cast are, is relatively well known and thought I would bring it for our underrated movies uh, to really talk about why it's underrated. We'll go further into that later. But to give everyone a brief synopsis, um, basically the movie is uh, about a father-daughter team uh, their names are Damon and C, played by Jay Duplass and Sophie Thatcher. Uh, they are prospectors. They land on a distant moon to essentially mine for special minerals. Uh, but when they land, they find themselves uh, with a broken ship. Uh, their ship or their little pod kind of blows up and uh, leaves them stranded on this moon. And they're so they decide to go searching for... Um, a very special rare gem called Oralac, uh, based on one gem that they find. There's speculate the father speculates that there could be uh, a mother load, the queen's lair is what the movie calls it. So C and Damon go off to try to find this mother load of Oralac, uh, but they come across two other prospectors that are potentially dangerous. Uh, Damon gets shot by one of them and killed in a gunfight. And C, his daughter, must essentially team up with the other prospector, uh, played by Pedro Pascal, who's potentially dangerous. We don't know what his deal is, but they team up to basically figure out how to get off the moon alive. Because it turns out there are even more people who uh, or uh, communities that are also living on this distant moon. So plot is pretty straightforward. And yeah, I think, so like, why was I bringing it as an underrated movie? If you look at Rotten Tomatoes, it's, it has an 89% uh, and a pretty generally high uh, audience. So 89% critical, 70% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. So generally pretty liked by both audiences and critics. And it looks like based on some of the research I was doing in preparation for this episode, that in fact, there is a project underway to create another film within this same prospect universe uh, that Zeke Earl and Chris Caldwell are working on. But I think maybe if not underrated, it's kind of, in my opinion, an underappreciated project uh, that really showcases how much directors and writers and creators can do with a relatively modest budget. The total budget for this movie was only $4 million. The production design budget was $840,000, which is like (laughs) not much for a feature length film. And uh, it's also a short movie compared to a lot of stuff that's coming out now. An hour and 40 minutes, you know, it's got a straight, relatively straightforward plot, 
um, and I think does a lot with very minimal means and uh, and pretty understated performances too. But I'm curious to know what you all think. Have any of you seen this movie before or had anybody heard of this movie before I uh, pitched it for this episode? When you brought this movie up to like record, I was like, oh, I think Christina and I talked about this years ago. So I think I vaguely heard of it or we probably maybe talked about it in like 2018. But I know this is my my first time watching it. Yeah, my first time watching it, too. Out of the blue. I'd never heard about or seen this. Yeah. Which I suppose kind of illustrates your point. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess um, I'm curious to know, like, now that we've kind of covered the ground of, like, who's seen it, I'm curious to know what you guys thought of this movie. And also, the movie really takes a lot of inspiration from a lot of classic sci-fi movies that have come before it. Uh, possibly, arguably, in elements, derivatively so. I mean, you've got like the production design, a lot of it even feels like kind of old school Star Wars tactile production design. Um, I mean, the creators themselves said that they definitely were inspired by Alien, uh, which we've talked about on this podcast. That's pretty apparent in the ship interiors, especially, yeah. So, yeah, what it like, I guess... What did you all, what were your initial impressions or did you find yourself thinking about other sci-fi movies while you were watching it? I suppose I thought of some other properties here and there, but it really, I don't know, it did a pretty good job of holding my attention and, and bringing me immersively into uh, the environment that it was is building and the, the world building that it, it engages in. And I think the way that it engages in world building, especially for a sci-fi film, was really great. Uh, I think that it yeah, it does have some derivative elements, but at the same time, this is kind of one of those movies. It's It's got a tremendous amount of confidence in some arenas in terms of trusting its audience and way too little in some others. Uh, but in terms of the sci-fi elements of it, yeah, I think this does kind of that. The George, uh, the, yeah, I'm going back to him again, that George Miller thing of like him explaining at one point, like, you don't have to teach people about every detail of the world that you're building as long as your characters confidently navigate those things and you know that they are. That may That's what makes it convincing without having to over-explain everything. Because in sci-fi, there is a trend to... There's an impulse to over-intellectualize and, and explain literally everything in a kind of a showy way. And this movie really trusts its audience in its sci-fi presentation to take from it necessary details through character action rather than explanation and also invites audience imagination to fill in the gaps of what is unexplained. So, and I think that makes for some of the best sci-fi material and it is a real strength of this movie. And it takes its sci-fi seriously too. Um, like it holds to conventions, like it, it feels, you know, I'm using realistic with big air quotes, but um, it 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 has its sci-fi conventions and it kind of sticks to it. I actually really love. I, I think the production design and like the world is by far the strongest part of the movie overall. I'd say I liked it, but I don't know if I loved it. And I think underappreciated. I think is kind of where I land on it. Um, Christina brought that up. Um, like one, like I think this movie's filled with such wonderful details that I'm excited to talk about. One is that they have their helmets on on this poisonous planet. So they have to talk on radio channels. So that means our characters can run through the woods and nobody will hear them because they have the helmets on. So there's just lots of really well thought out details of what would it be like to have this drop pod to be on this planet. Everything feels really thought out um, and really meticulous. And the detail work is just really meticulous when it comes to the world and how our characters interact with it. It's interesting you bring up helmets because this is 2018 and this was Pedro Pascal's helmet era. Uh, and <laughs> In fact, pre or maybe during Mandalorian production, I can't remember when the Mandalorian first came out, but yeah, so Pedro was definitely going through his, <laughs> I have to keep my helmet on uh, phase. And I, one quick note on that front, I do think it's, it's great that they were so committed to the realism of that, that those transmissions are really muffled and like have the sound of being in a helmet. It did. I, I'm also, but at the same time, I'm someone who doesn't watch movies with subtitles, and I did have to with this one. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of radio communication within helmets that I thought I, I totally agree with you, Connor. It was it was a really effective detail, um, 
And it kind of added, I really appreciated that they also not only got the sounds of people speaking in the helmets, but you have a lot of helmet breathing, which depending (laughs) on who you are, could either get really annoying. I thought it was an effective way to sort of sustain tension. You know, it's like they've crashed on this far off moon. There is foliage, uh, alien foliage, AKA the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) Yeah. That's another thing. (laughs) Olympic national park or whatever in uh, Washington. But um, they're, you know, they're sweating in these helmets and breathing really heavy as they have to hike to figure out a safe place to hide out. So I I really appreciated that, um, that like sound design element and um, sort of, yeah, the the heaving (laughs) coming through over their radios. Um, I, I hate to do this, um, but I think that this movie is uh, appropriately rated and then perhaps um, overappreciated. No, I'll I'll say it's underappreciated because I I haven't heard about it, but um, I didn't really care for this movie. Um, I think it was incredibly predictable. I zoned out at points and was able to completely follow along because I was just like, oh, so they're doing that. Oh, they're doing this. And normally that stuff doesn't bother me because... um, I, those are movies, right? Like there's only so many things you can do, so many things that are new, but it was just like really not capturing my attention. Um, So I was like annoyed by all of that. I will say though, that the, the arm cutting off scene, we were all like, and that's when um, the, the caption came up, bone sawing, squelching. And after that, I was like, I also found the the cinematography. I mean, obviously the Pacific Northwest is gorgeous, but like the the things that they added to it, like the the faint mist that was around the camera, like to be really infuriating. And um I love being dropped in a universe and trying to figure things out through character interactions like what we've talked about, but like in the first conversation between the the daughter and her father, they mention like all of these planets. They mention like a bunch of other things. And I was like, ah, I can't take this. This is like overload for me. Just like, keep it simple. I, I don't, I don't need to know too, too much about that, especially if we're only going to be on this, like one area, you can, you can slowly introduce things that way. But for someone like me, I, I just get really distracted by my, like, unimportant details and like unfortunately I was too preoccupied with trying to figure those things out and also I'm kind of bummed that the first character I think with the same name as one of our dear friends Damon um he dies so early I was like oh that made me sad but like that you know completely not necessary so it doesn't have any impact on how i feel about the movie but i'm so sorry christine i just i it's not for me but i'm glad that the rest of y'all enjoyed it that's fair i mean you bring up some good points like this the plot is super simple um and but i think for me i really liked that um i i thought it was taking a pretty yeah i would agree predictable narrative uh there's reviewers that you know, compare it not only to sci-fi, but to a, a Western, you know, it's like going into an unfamiliar space and trying to harvest it for its resources. And then the space that people are, you know, extracting things from, uh, is, is harsh, it's desolate and people pull out their guns and start killing each other. When the, when Jay Duplass's character, Damon dies, I thought that was one of the best, most effective moments of the entire movie because it felt very anticlimactic in a way. It was like, oh, there he's dead. All right. Now she doesn't have a dad and she doesn't have a teammate. So like, what's she going to do now? Um, And it kind of does it in a very um, kind of straightforward manner, which I appreciate in like survival kind of narratives. Yeah, I love that, that, uh, that exchange where it's a moment where um, C and um, her father stumble upon these these two wandering uh, prospectors themselves, each of them armed. And when it does finally come to a shootout, there there's no quick cuts. It's just one wide shot of the whole exchange, which is really great. 
And it does make it anticlimactic, which is interesting because it's, in essence, kind of the big exciting, inciting incident of the movie, but it underplays it in a way that's, uh, I think, tastefully interesting. I think framing is one of Prospect's biggest strong suits. Um, I think that the these directors have a really good eye for like setting up a scene, directing physical movement, where to draw the eye, when to go big, when to zoom in. Um, mm-hmm. They also love their wide shots. We have a lot of horizon shots. Like I get it, we're on this alien planet. There's a red star or red moon, something. You know, I, I get it. So there's a lot of establishing shots, but I think overall the sense of framing, sense of direct, you have like where you're supposed to look. I think over, I think this movie's really well shot, and for me, I think it's like the writing where things kind of, for me, don't quite work as well. Um, it takes about forty-five minutes before the movie is hitting the plot wheels, and we're getting to like what the film is going to kind of be like. It just feels like there's a lot of setup. There's a lot of button pushing at the beginning. I love seeing how they're going to detach the pod, how they have their little books, but it's like, okay, I I don't know what buttons you're pressing, what exactly this is doing. You're flipping through. So I don't know, it's like, I loved a lot of that stuff, but I wonder how much could have been trimmed or maybe a little rewritten to just feel like the characterization was a little stronger to match the really excellent um, filmmaking senses that um, these directors have, because they also wrote the script as well. You know, one thing that I think is really interesting about that, Connor, is I had the opposite reaction. I think that the writing really was what drew me through this movie, by contrast to some of the production design, because you, for me, you could really tell that these guys, this was their first big feature-length film, because a good 30% of this movie is establishing shots of the planet. Just sort of like interstitial cutaways that are added that each last maybe like 10 to 15 seconds. And I, I think that's appropriate, both within the sci-fi and Western genre, as we're going to get to, in capturing landscape and developing the world visually. But Ultimately, it results in, as we discussed, like there's not a whole lot of like exotic otherness about this environment. It it looks like a national park. So when we're cutting so frequently to these still shots of this, at a certain point, it really slows the movie down. And I think is really not so much even an intentional thing because it, it really takes its time with character interaction as it should in order to build character in like the Western, like the Western movie tradition of like, slow conversational character development and exchanges but where the movie really hits its brakes is how frequently it's interrupted by just static shots and it really kind of felt like they got to the point where they were like all right we have about a 60 minute movie and we need to pad the runtime here so let's get a b uh, a second unit in here to shoot some ambience and then got a little carried away that's interesting because i was like oh you know they really edited it down to an hour 40 but i love that theory jay <laughs> they're sitting on a 60 minute movie and being like hmm this is feature length we need to add some nice context like shots and close-ups of alien crickets or whatever and it'd be one uh, thing too if like there were it was populated by like some interesting like otherworldly things but it's really kind of just like this just sort of looks like footage, like commercial footage of advertising a national park throughout this movie over and over again. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, definitely probably due to production constraints and, you know, all the things that happen on a really small movie budget. Um, yeah. For $4 million, I don't hold it against them. I just felt it did get a little distracting is all, I guess. Oh yeah, no, I I totally hear that, and I think you you guys are all bringing up uh, really really great points um, as far as like where is that balance of production world building and also making you care about the characters? And it sounds like we're kind of um, have different thoughts about whether we actually felt invested in the story and like where these characters were going, what was going to happen to them. Um, I think. Yeah, I guess let's talk a little bit about some of the characters. Uh, so we've got C, who's, you know, probably middle school, high school age, but clearly not in this world because it sounds like she's basically spent most of her life with her father. The mother died in an unexplained manner, but uh, it's pretty much been just them two for a while. And pretty much most of her life is going from planet to planet with her father harvesting different minerals. How do you think that the character C uh, unfolds over the course of the movie? And, and yeah, what did, like, what did you, yeah, what did you get from her character? Because really, you know, it's very much 
her until we meet uh, Pedro Pascal's character. And yeah, what do you think of the relationship she has with her father? It's tough not to crack C because um, I, I want to be critical of the character in a way that, like, I feel that their rel- their their wants and their desires are a little underdeveloped. But at the same time, it's not out of place in either of these genres, whether you consider it a sci-fi or a western. To have a vessel character, you know, our protagonist that guides us through navigating more interesting, seedy, or dangerous uh, side characters. So uh, it's a tough call. I think, like, I would have appreciated a little more character development, but I think it's an effective uh, embodiment of that genre trope, of of this vessel character that is, um, you know, confident and competent. In, in a harsh survivalist environment that we don't get to learn a lot about them because this isn't this isn't a pleasant world or experience. They've got to really muscle through the thing. Um, and I, that convention is part of why I don't sway toward Westerns all that often, but I do appreciate that convention and I think it handles it well. That's a really interesting point about like how much interiority do we really get out of the C character? Uh, on one hand, for like... Uh, audience investment you know you gotta have some sense of like what makes her tick and what enables her to handle all of these really intense situations like sawing off uh pedro pascal's arm (laughs) uh which she does without breaking a sweat and you're like wait what um and he like the character of ezra he's even like wait why are you so cool about this Mm -hmm. but on the other hand to your point dave you know she's grown up in this environment um and in many ways not conveying to others a sense of like fear or interior like like any interiority might be a result of just like constantly being in space survival mode as you go from planet to planet to like harvest minerals um, so in, in some ways I thought it was, you know, kind of realistic. What, what did, uh, Sam or Connor, what'd you guys think of C's character or, um, what we learn about her? I thought she was interesting. I think that the, re- the scenes, the relationship between her and her father really rubbed me the wrong way. Like I did not care for him at all. And, you know, the, despite his name being Damon, I, I did not have any feelings of when he, he died. Cause I mean, you can tell it's going to happen. So I, I didn't care. Um, it is interesting having one of your main characters be like a, like a middle junior high girl and, and watching her take care of herself and, and do all of those things. So I, I guess I appreciate that. But like, again, I just, I didn't care. So I was like, okay, I'll watch that. But again, her cutting his arm off. I, I thought that was disgusting, but also badass. <laughs> yeah. I think they really lucked out with Sophie Thrasher being such a great actress and really elevating the, material in my opinion the material that's given to her but i think what maybe in like dialogue doesn't quite work for me um they did a really great job in giving her lots of great moments listening to her to listen and the sometimes an alien like rock music is like she has her headphones she writes a lot uh there's a really great scene where like she talks about like writing about a book because her father wouldn't let her read the book anymore um i think that there's a lot of great moments given to her which allows a great actor or actress to like take those good moments and kind of bring a character to life where maybe sentence by sentence, it's not quite elevating it, but I think they give her a lot of really strong actions to take, which at the end of the day is like one of the most important things to do when you're writing a movie. So I think Sophie Thrasher really elevates this character to be one who is like compelling and one who you're kind of ultimately rooting for. But I kind of wish there was maybe a little more interiority we've been mentioning. There are a couple lines. We talked a little earlier about the balance of an or like an effective script having a balance of like dialogue that gives you enough information to situate you in this in the setting and the context and the action, but like not give everything away or like create dialogue that is just so unrealistic. Like no, mm-hmm. that would not leave anyone's mouth in like a regular conversation. Um, and I think for the most part, the dialogue does a pretty good job of having them talk like harvesting speak where you're like, ooh, okay, there's Oralac and they have to, there's certain layers of this gem that are poisonous and will destroy the like 
the value or the, or the integrity of the gem and things like that. So I was like, okay, I was, I was getting into the like Orlac harvesting talk that C was having with her father. Uh, but there was one moment of dialogue where I'm like, they did not need this. And this is a bad example of when it's bad is when C and Damon find this initial Orlac, this beautiful like amber gem or something that looks really valuable and Damon is like, yeah, we could probably get 10,000 like units for it or whatever. Space bucks. Like dollars, space bucks. And then C goes, oh, you mean enough to pay for the loan? And it's like, <laughs> it's like, we don't need, like, I know that you're trying to set up this idea of like, they need the money and more Orlac will really set them up to be, uh, you know, financially secure but it's like one of these things where it's like maybe bring that up later or just like very explanatory um dialogue that felt a little clunky uh like it also felt like a very western trope like ooh, did pay for medicine for grandma like ooh, if we find this treasure of gold we're gonna be able to like get little timmy the you know medicine that he needs which is like these are very important plot lines but just feel so clunky whenever they leave the mouth of characters well and i felt like the movie did a good job at the beginning of setting up the stakes of why damon is risking because basically they're risking missing the spaceship taking off Mm -hmm. i think about this like in in three days on this planet three cycles the spaceship that holds all the pods is going to leave oh but one last score that's going to solve all our problems like that's a trope which I feel like they set up. So yeah, why well, like enough for the loan? It's like it's just like a ninety-minute movie. I kind of know what's. Going I know why money's important in general, and why for C and Damon, this money is critical. And this is also it ultimately becomes a compliment, but it, it's a problem at first. Um, as I said before, I think this movie has tremendous confidence in its audience and their imagination as far as not explaining every element of the sci-fi world. But for a movie that is as much a sci-fi movie as it is structurally a western it has zero confidence in its audience to make that connection. And I think the biggest culprit is Ezra, where he is, you know, and call it nitpicky, but like, this is, you know, this is another moon, however many years into the future, space travel, like interstellar travel has been established, we're all over the place. But Ezra, Pedro Pascal's character, still talks like he's like a Hank Williams fan from a Cormac McCarthy book. And I think that that jargon is like functionally like it's interesting, but it overstates that you're supposed to understand this structurally as a Western for a movie that really obviously does that already. I think on the page, both he and C's characters are pretty boilerplate and tropey in that regard, but it is Pascal who elevates it uh, as we, as with uh, with Sophie uh, Thatcher. Because it's weird, the weirdest thing. I, I was pretty neutral on Pascal and haven't seen him in a lot of stuff, but like everything I've seen him in, including the bubble that I mentioned earlier from this year, which is trash. Uh, he's got a terribly written character and turns in one of the only passable performances. Uh, he's, I think, the best part of Wonder Woman 84, even though his character is terribly written. And I think his character isn't poorly written here, but he, it would you couldn't pull off this like jargony, old-timey vernacular with someone else. I think he really does a, he, it kind of proof that he's a great actor because he's elevated from the page to the screen every performance I've seen him take on. And he really brings a winning charm to this character, even though I think that the way he's speaking is so anachronistic that it's distracting. At first, I thought this was part of like his ploy to like lull Damon or like throw Damon off his game when they first encounter him, him and the silent partner, another kind of stereotype. Uh, talkative guy silent partner um but then it's kind of like oh this is if it just kind of feels like oh we got this great idea for a character who talks like this we're embracing these themes and ideas and I was so watching the movie in real time I was like oh maybe this is like part of his ploy like he's throwing people off his game like who talks like this like no that's just kind of that's like writer speak they had a fun idea Pedro Pascal delivered it in a fun it. way and so we're just kind of this is just the way it is it's not a character conscious choice that feels like a writer conscious choice that could be too critical but i don't know that's kind of what it kind of feels like to me yeah you guys bring up really great points uh about ezra's character about the way that he's written i like it's definitely on one hand 
I think that the movie is not trying to hide its influences and like what it's trying to achieve as sort of a composite of arguably sci-fi and Western tropes. Um, And yeah, it's not trying to say that it like is subverting those in any way. I think it's more of a, we love these elements and therefore we're going to put it into our movie. But on the other hand, it, it definitely initially is a little bit jarring. Uh, I totally agree, Dave. The moment when I first watched this movie, the moment that Ezra starts talking, I'm like, does he really have to have like, <laughs> I guess like a Western accent kind of thing? Space McConaughey or something. Space, yeah. Space McConaughey, I think, is an excellent way of describing what what is happening there. But I also agree that. Pascal just owns it and really sits in the character and I think makes a really interesting, makes some interesting choices with that character. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, his partner is the one that, no, he killed Damon, not the partner. I mean, he and his partner are tricking C and Damon, basically like hold them up for their oral act. And ultimately are responsible for killing her father, which C continually reminds him. He's like, why would I ever listen to you? You you shot my dad. But he brings an, an another element to that character, this sort of softness. And you're like, okay, I, I guess I get like some other dimensions to your character. He provides also some levity you know, in moments that feel very um, serious and in sort of that Pascal charm where you, he's a charmer, which I also think is kind of a trope, like trope, like the charmer potential villain. Uh, But ultimately you see Ezra and C team up once they start encountering other communities that are living on this uh, moon uh, that get them into some potentially hairy situations. Um, like they're trying to f- essentially find uh, a way off the moon. They're trying to find more oxygen. They're running out of oxygen in their tank or in their suits. And they stumble upon an encampment of people that have been living there for a while. And at first you think that there's going to be sort of this kind of like uh, them welcoming Ezra and C in and giving them food and giving oxygen, but essentially it then turns out that they want Ezra to basically give or sell C to them because I think their issues with procreation. Basically, they need to make babies and populate this bit of a space. water world scenario going. A little on here, bit yeah. of water world, yeah, a little bit of water world. But then C's like fuck no and runs away, and that adds an element just as C and Ezra had been possibly building a relationship being like, okay, we can work together to get off this moon. Then there's that sort of distrust fractures, you know, their relationship and she's, and then she goes off on her own. And then ultimately Ezra finds her and has this wound and, or no, he he's continually grappling with this wound that happened when C's father shot back at him. So he's had this festering wound and he's trying to look for medicine to, to patch it up. Well, it's actually and her that shoots him when he boards the Oh, ship. excuse me. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. So that heightens it even more in a way. Ezra in the gunfight, the ultimate shootout. And uh, so he's trying to find medicine for that. And C confronts him. She's like, were you going to sell me <laughs> to these people and like hand me over? And you, yeah, he's like, you know, he's still a little slippery. He's this little slippery of character. And I, that kind of element I kind of appreciate. It, the movie doesn't feel water world as in, <laughs> I don't think we're supposed to view Ezra as this sort of hero. I think that he's just a character that exists, that you that's has bad and good elements in sort of a non sort of platforming way. You know, it's like, he's not, the thrust of the of the story and so it definitely doesn't i i don't think do as much damage as waterworld does but he's an intriguingly slippery character um i i really like too that like that scene she runs before he has the opportunity to say whether or not he would have committed to that deal um yeah. and whether or not you know it's 
there's really no reason to believe him when he says he wouldn't have done it necessarily, even though he does. So yeah, that ambiguity is really cool. And I think that there's definitely like a, it's another Western thing that even though I'm not the biggest fan of the genre that I really like is this sense of leverage that need in this world of survival. Like there's very few moments in the first half of this movie in their interactions where someone's not pointing a gun at someone. And there's this sort of like constant sense of negotiation for survival that maintains itself up until the end when they've established like a true bond and she goes out of her way to save him, even though that's not necessary, which is kind of the big growth of it. Um, so yeah, yeah, a lot of, a lot of Western tropes that carry through in that regard that I think are really great. I think, yeah, your identification of the ambiguity, I think is a really great point. And, um, and, and that, yeah, ambiguity being connected to kind of, uh, Western, you know, archetypes, but also, being uh, an asset in in not sort of one dimensionalizing the char- the characters. Um, let's talk about that ending. Uh, I, I'm curious to know like what you thought about uh, about that ending. So just to kind of get us there narratively, C and Damon or C and Ezra get back together and essentially are going to. They arrive at the the mother mother load that another set of prospectors um, have also staked out, and Ezra is essentially pretending to be Damon and being like, "Oh, I was actually uh, sent here to work with you guys because I'm the best Oralac harvester, and uh, me and C here we're the best there is, and you guys have been uh, expecting us, um, and really they're gonna." try to take the uh these other harvesters ship to try to get off the moon and so there's this whole orlac extraction process which i think from a, a practical effects perspective is a pretty nice set the, the way that the orlac extraction uh is shot i think is wonderful it's definitely a very alien you know you've got this sort of viscous mucus uh, casing that has to be cut through. It kind of looks like a, like a mushy radish, uh, but it's all so tactile. I think that this was a really fun procedure to watch twice as they're harvesting this Oralac. But uh, yeah, shit just expo- basically predictably as Sam, you know, Sam's like, I predicted everything, uh, but predictability to me, I'm like, you know, I, I'm uh, I'm intrigued by this world. I uh, want to see what happens. They get into a fight with the other harvesters, and then suddenly we see this other character, which I really want to know your guys' thoughts about. There's this pink dude in a glass box, just sitting there. <laughs> What do you guys think of this character that's so that's sort of off screen, but like always there at this uh, at the Queen's Lair of this Oralac uh, mining location? I mean, it's set dressing till it's not. You know, it's it's just another visual element that explains this world with like uh, implication rather than exposition, which is cool. I mean, they do explain that like he is uh, someone that they've been uh, paid to like leave on this world to die. Um, but that explains so little about like how he's masked or like the pink hue of him or what this containment unit's going to be or all this stuff. Uh, up until at a crucial moment, he escapes. Does he escape it or do they let him out? I forget. He he gets out. I he think. gets or out. He, yeah. It's it's also unclear. His mask isn't attached to anything, or maybe he ripped it out because he can't really breathe in without a suit. And so he's like, fuck it, I'm just gonna get out of here. Dave, like I wrote in my notes, I was like, is this another like Mad Max ripoff? Like his outfit looked like it was straight out of like Fury Road. That's an Immortan <laughs> Joe mask, and this is three years later. Yeah, that that caught my attention right away. But I, I do appreciate that it, it does appear to be just like another set design and uh, production detail element until it becomes an active part of the story just at the end, which is cool. So it pays off, I think. So, yeah, you've got this big explosion shootouts. It's C and Ezra versus the other miners. And ultimately, in yes, predictable fashion, 
all the other miners finally die, but Pink Man definitely uh, <laughs> uh, sort of Deus Ex Pink Man uh, <laughs> like keeps the momentum going. And C and Ezra are able to get the ship uh, and launch off, and then the movie ends. Did you guys think that Ezra was going to make it out alive in this movie? I was really convinced he wasn't going to make it, which is why I found it surprising that, uh, Sam, that you found it predictable, because I thought it was predictable in that Western sense of, like, uh, an older mentor seeing um, a younger person through a harsh survivalist environment through that, you know, like kind of like broad canon Western tradition of like, it's going to be at a cost. They're going to die and the child will go on. Um, so I appreciate that it subverted that because that did take me back. I really didn't expect that was how that was how it was going to shake out. I also, I didn't think he was going to, but either way, no matter what happened, I was like, yep, that was that, that would have happened. Yes. That <laughs> is how this movie would end. So it didn't really matter for me. Well, and I thought it was a little ambiguous. Is he going to survive? Like, he's definitely not in good shape. <laughs> like, straight up, he's not well. So I was also kind of like, it, I, it, when I finished it, I was like, oh, there's like a chance that he lives, but I didn't see it as a, this is conclusive, he survives and is all right. It seemed like she's, the moment was she saved him. So I felt like that was the more critical thing. Then, mm-hmm. And then we'll see later if he's able to get medical attention and survive. And it, yeah, I mean, and it might be that Zeke, uh, the, the the directors, or Zeke Earl and Chris Caldwell kind of like knew they had a gem of sorts and were like, let's oh, keep a possibility open for more adventures with C and Ezra. Who knows? I mean, I, you know, I feel like I give Marvel a lot of shit for being so calculating uh, in its constant churning out of more storylines and universe building like or world building elements and shoving characters here and i'm like i'm sick of it i don't give a shit um but it is interesting to see this play out on a small scale so just through google i was like there are a lot of i i think these creators are developing a fan base online because there's an entire like character like wiki character list like there is for like big, much bigger story you know like uh you know star wars they're like there's a whole wiki submitter uh write-up for the pink guy and there's some other explanations of this world and and the the gems and the harvesting and everything and i kind of like that it's generating this interest online that people really took to this world and want to talk about it and want to sort of build it out uh, more details around around this story. And as I had mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it sounds like there's in production, at least, or in the works, um, some uh, another movie that will be somewhat at least tangentially related to this uh, to this story. So even though I like to, you know, maybe give other bigger production worlds shit for doing this kind of sort of calculating world building, I sort of was energized by uh, the creator's approach to really caring about the, the details in their story and generating kind of online interest and fan base for for these characters and for the details in the world. But uh, yeah, any any kind of last thoughts as we're as we're wrapping up? There's two moments that I wanted to bring up that I think really have stuck with me. Uh, when the pod disengages, like the interesting, like upward angle where you see the like the sunroof, for lack of a better word, like the the glass window and the ceiling and the drop that happens, um, I felt like in a good way, like a little pit in my stomach, like it just felt, and like you're seeing it drop out of there, like that just felt really visceral, um, in a way that was kind of like unexpected. Maybe it's like the way that the camera was like fixed to it. I'm not sure, but I thought that was like a really impressive shot. And the framing around his silent partner who has like the welder mask with the tinted glass. So you don't see his eyes, don't see his face. Uh, And the way that he just has like locked eyes on C uh, and like just really focuses on her the whole time. And the way that's like shot and framed is like this very dark because Pedro Pascal is wearing like earth tones. uh, But he's like this jet black mask that's just staring straight ahead at the camera, the way that it's framed. Uh, was pretty chilling and I think really effective. So those are two shots that uh, I thought were particularly noteworthy and wanted to shout out at the end. 
I'm so glad you brought up the silent partner. You're totally right, Connor. We never see under the hood, but that shape of his mask, the welder's mask, is really, you're totally right, really chilling. Especially because it's featureless. There's really no sense of, though Though it does imply through that shot, Connor, that, yeah, he's staring dead onto her. For all we know, he could have been staring without turning his head at Damon the entire time waiting to, waiting to spring, which is the cool, like, mystique of that ambiguity both visually and in terms of him being uh nonverbal. it reminded we just talked about the movie zodiac a few weeks ago and it kind of reminded me of the lake scene a little of where he has the black hood on you're not quite sure what he's looking at exactly like it's there's this distance that's uncomfortable and it looks like he's kind of looking at the person at the me the viewer um so i thought yeah i thought that was just really effective and that sun, uh, yeah, again, for lack of a better term, the sun uh, sunroof kind of a uh, moment, yeah, with the drop, I think. Yeah, really effective way to um, to illustrate all that uh, on a shoestring budget because all you need is a, a green screen outside that window. Uh, and it also gives you an opportunity, rather than seeing like a really expensive shot of a ship just falling, it places you in that experience with the character, which is uh, a smart choice, uh, albeit probably budgetary, but uh, still much more immersive that way. And also, yeah, I think uh, some of the most beautiful shots are actually within this pod that they built. Um, There's a beautiful Blade Runner-esque shot where the light from either the ship or maybe some solar, something solar that's happening, there's this beautiful panel of light that falls across see in Damon's faces as they're dislodging from the, uh, from the ship. And it's, it's just a really stunning shot. And uh, I had watched a little behind the scenes documentary or like kind of making of little short movie that gave you some insights into this production. Um, And really it was, you know, just a small crew in this studio in uh, like outside of Seattle They built the pod all from wood and there's a beautiful uh, scene in this little video where there's about 10 guys, like 10 crew members all around this pod, literally just shaking this wooden structure. And then that was the shaking of the pod dislodging and trying to land on the moon. And so these, these wonderful little production tricks um, that I think really brings some special uh, details to this uh, to this movie and really show that, like, I think, and I don't know, it's like I kind of had the movie magic chills to be reminded that, like, with even a small budget, you can make a like a really, yes, simple, but um, kind of compelling small film. I mean, yeah, as I had mentioned at the beginning of the episode, that this was a Vimeo short that was... I think 12 to 14 minutes long. Um, I watched the short and I was like, yeah, I liked the movie better. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, you know, and they had like interviews with the, with the directors and they're like, we basically got our friends and our crew together and we're like sewing costumes, like going into grab bin, like grab bag bins to figure out what random shit we could turn into a suit or turn into like a fun gadget of sorts. And I also love that kind of scrappy, uh, uh, kind of resourceful approach to a movie, especially when I feel like, you know, a lot of what we see is just like either CGI, you know, I feel like, like, you know, it's like a broken record. I love movies that are big budget and just like fucking take you there. But I also like small movies that really do a lot with a little yeah, that's also why I guess I'd tip my cap to this movie as an underrated movie. That they were able to pull this off on that budget is uh, pretty astonishing. Well, that uh, kind of rounds it out. We've done underrated, underappreciated, had some great discussions about some fun movies. And uh, join us next week for our our very special new theme not going to give it away, but it's wonderful. It's going to be a lot of fun. So excited. And as always, folks, write us an email, check us out on Instagram, check it out, check us out on Twitter. Also, we're so continuing, we continue to be so happy to be a part of the Movie John podcast. Be sure to check out all those other wonderful podcasts. Um, I think there's some fun stuff 
happening in the movie John world coming down the pike for, for October. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. And uh, as always, uh, have a good whatever. We will see you next week. Bone saw squelching. This has been a Movie John podcast.